Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director, and every other week we'll open with a new author's short story that we've recorded for you. Then, following each, we'll be sitting down to chat with the author. We'll talk about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Then, at the end of this mini-series, I'll be trying to write and narrate my own short story, informed by all the wonderful people I've talked with. We'll also have bonus episodes focusing on audiobooks along the way, chats with industry professionals, interviews with authors, and anyone else I can get to talk to me about audiobooks. This week, we have a young adult short story by Samantha Rose Panapinto. Sam is a writing teacher in Brooklyn, New York, where she lives with her partner and two beautiful, inconsiderate cats. Her YA fiction is inspired by the ways young people take back their power and wreak havoc on attempts to keep them in line. Her work centres queer teens with big voices, navigating situations both familiar and far off. So please, sit back and enjoy this week's short story, recorded from Sam's Blanket Fort in Brooklyn. The Alonzo Research Centre for Studies of the Undead by Samantha Rose Panapinto If you're going to be cutting bodies open all day, you can't see them as people. Not even things that used to be people. Not even things that used to be people several iterations ago and were essentially walking flesh bags even before they kicked it. That's what Paloma told me on my first day of my internship. After she opened the lab door and looked me up and down with raised eyebrows. Mariella. Actually, I uh, usually go by Ella, but hi, it's really good to... But I trailed off because she'd already turned back around without another word. The crisp blue Oxford shirt that Career Services recommended felt immediately wrong next to Paloma's severe middle part, black turtleneck under her lab coat, and dark lipstick. My only cue to follow her was the open door. That first moment more or less sums up the mood of my internship so far. Since then, I've learned to listen the fuck up when Paloma speaks, because it could be hours or days before she does again. She'll only say something if it's of vital importance, and may the tortured souls of the flesh bags help you if you don't remember it. It took about five seconds into opening my first body to realize how critical that first piece of advice would be. Let's be clear, I'm not squeamish. I was the kid who leaned closer to see the scrape when I fell on the playground, marveling at how the layers of skin stacked on top of one another until they simply gave way to gristle and bone. The teenager who watched the nurse insert the butterfly needle to draw my blood for STI testing. In bio one freshman year, when we dissected the fetal pig, I stayed in the lab long after the other kids left, pulling out organs and feeling their firm squishiness slip through my fingers. But none of that stopped me from sprinting out the door to puke the first time I watched Paloma drag the scalpel around a hairline and peel back the scalp in preparation to drill through the skull. It was nothing like the fetal pig. This body had been a whole person, and she, like everyone we'd see in the lab, had had the sickness. Instead of layers of pink, healthy tissue, the flesh was blackened and rotting around the edges like a ham left out in the sun. 
We know enough about the virus at this point to know that the state of the skin means the body was walking around for weeks with the brain essentially shot. Finished. Swiss cheese. The virus is picky. It eats the tastiest parts of the brain first, the ones that deal with creativity and logic and compassion. It leaves the boring parts that control the body, which is why an infected body continues to walk around long after its humanity is gone. Since the whole brain-eating process takes a few weeks, rotting skin means nobody was looking out for you. Nobody noticed you were slowly slipping away and took you to a hospital, or they could put you out of your misery with a drug cocktail before your loved ones had to watch you get devoured from the inside out. Nor did anyone borrow a pistol and drive your shell of a body to a remote location and take care of it themselves. This one's been giving law enforcement a real conundrum in rural areas where gun ownership is more widespread than health insurance. Is it murder if the person isn't a person anymore? At what point are you dead, even if your body's still walking around? We've gotten more than a few bodies with gunshot wounds to the back of the head in various stages of disease advancement. We take those the same as we take any other infected body. Depending on the gore, they're usually less helpful for studying how the virus targets different areas of the brain. But at this point, any data is helpful data. And it makes the families feel better to know the body could help find a vaccine for this shit. I don't know how to tell them we're no closer to finding a vaccine than we were when I started six weeks ago. And neither are any of the 463 other labs across the country doing similar research. I press my palms into my eye sockets as I head to check the intake forms for today. When I listed the Alonso Research Center for Infectious Diseases as my first choice for fourth-year internships, I thought I'd be researching the Ebola virus or bird flu or one of the other classics, preparing for the next time one of those had an outbreak, but nothing immediate. Then the sickness started, not a month later, and it became the Alonso Research Center for Studies of the Undead, in my mind at least. Almost overnight, my work started to impact millions of people. How the fuck is the world trusting me with this? Me, Ella, the fourth-year med student with mediocre grades, whose mentor probably hates her, or at least thinks she's incompetent. Three bodies came in since I left last night. Their intake forms neatly stacked on a clipboard at the front desk, like always. The transport crew from the morgue always leaves things just so. I wonder if it's a personality thing. Working with dead bodies means you can have more control. The dead don't get up and mess up your filing system or make you self-conscious like living people do. Paloma won't be in for another hour. It's my job to complete the paperwork for the bodies of the day and prep them for us to drill through their skulls and take samples of brain tissue. I skimmed the forms for the info I need. Time of last brain activity, estimated date of infection. Those let me know more or less what state to expect the body to be in when I pull it out of its freezer drawer in the basement. As a rule, I don't look at the names. Part of the whole not seeing bodies as people thing. I honestly don't know why they even include them on the lab intake forms. But today, the one on the third form catches my eye. Yamel Villanueva. Instinctively, I flick the form away. It flutters to the floor face down. My blood feels like it's made of tiny grains of sand, draining faster than they're supposed to out of an hourglass. Everything in me is rushing towards the earth. It can't be her. Someone with the same name, surely. I glance at the clock. Paloma's still not due in for a while. And even if she came in early, this very second... 
I can't see her saving me from this confrontation or being much of a support if it does turn out to be my Yamel. Paloma, who shows less emotion than the still-twitching body we got in last week. I take a deep breath. Crack my neck. Heart beating in my temples, I stoop down to pick up the paper where it's fallen next to my work boots. I flip it over and read the whole thing as fast as I can. I can't process what I've read. I read it again. Yamel Villanueva, age 24, height 66 inches, hair brown, eyes brown. Brown doesn't begin to cover the color of her eyes. They're gold and toffee and ochre and steeped in pain as she listened to me tell her I can't see her anymore. Why? Did I do something wrong? She didn't say it accusingly, just like she really wanted to know. No, I wanted to scream. That's the problem. You did everything right and I'm in love with you and that makes me feel like I'm falling into an abyss. I'm not ready for you. My body snaps into action. Fingers slide the intake form back into the clipboard where it started, neatly enough to make the morgue team proud. Feet march me across the floor and out the front door. When Paloma pulls up in her cream-colored vintage Mustang, I'm sitting on the stoop. Four cigarettes into the pack of American spirits I just bought at the deli across the street. A habit I picked up when my mom got sick. She always had cartons hidden around the house and would sit on the porch smoking them when she thought I was asleep. They seemed to calm her. I wanted to feel calm. So when she got too sick to crave them, I picked them up. She wasn't there enough to object by then. And I don't think Dad's noticed anything I've done since the day they told us she had the sickness. In any case, the way things are going, I doubt I'll be around long enough for lung cancer to get me. So I might as well enjoy a bad habit. I watch Paloma unfold out of her car with her signature all-black outfit, slicked back hair, and impassive expression. My legs stop shaking at this point, and the reel of Yamel memories is on its third loop, dark hair falling around my face as she leaned over me, her snort laughing on the bus, how small she looked sitting on the fence when I walked away for the last time. My body feels floaty and my throat is numb. I know Paloma can see me, but she doesn't turn to look at me until her door is locked and her bag is securely on her shoulder. So when she does, I have her full attention. She stands still for a moment, head cocked slightly to the left, exempt from the rules normal people have about staring. She seems to come to a decision and takes slow, deliberate steps towards me. I'm shocked when, instead of sliding past me, she settles herself next to me on the stoop and pulls a small tin out of her bag. I suck down the last of the cigarette in my hand and put it out on the cement step, watching her sprinkle tobacco in the center of the rolling papers and seal them into two perfect cylinders. She holds one out to me. I light and inhale, surprised at how smooth it feels, considering the work I've put into destroying my throat so far today. Someone you knew, Paloma says. Her voice is low and not quite raspy. Gravelly, you'd call it. I inhale sharply and cough and stare at her. She's looking straight ahead, though, into the passing cars. How'd you know? Your face? Yeah. My, um, someone I used to be involved with. Paloma nods, says nothing, gazes out across the street that's just starting to get trafficy. 
The way she's looking makes it seem like she's staring across the ocean. Not at the gray facades of the deli and the laundromat and the apartments above. I take another breath, then pause. Do I really want to share any more with Paloma? We don't have that type of relationship. It's not close. Not even what you could call friendly. But I have all this shit swirling around in my head. And where the fuck else can I put it? I can't sit here chain-smoking for the rest of my life. And I can't do anything else until my brain's at least a little unscrambled. I wish I could call mom. I lost a lover to the sickness as well, Paloma says. She would use the term lover. But also, wait, what? Is Paloma opening up? Paloma of the unflappable gothic energy? Of the staring at me wordlessly when I make a mistake? I take advantage of my turn to stare. Her profile is impossibly neat. Nose perfectly in proportion to lips and chin. Her lipsticks left the tiniest shadow of evidence on the end of her cigarette. It was in the initial wave, before we understood the early signs. Gemma had always been forgetful, so I wasn't worried at first when she started leaving her phone in weird places, like the fridge. Then she couldn't make sense of the morning paper. Then she got mean. The classic progression of the virus is it eats your short-term memory, your logical reasoning, your compassion. She keeps going. I wanted to be the one to take care of her when her time came. I didn't want her moving on in a hospital, surrounded by strangers. We put her in the backseat of the car, between two friends. We drove to the forest. We said our goodbyes. And I gave her the pill. The man who sells me these. She waves her cigarette. Has quite the thriving side business. Lots of demand these days. She takes a long drag and exhales. Her voice hasn't shaken the whole time, but her hand is giving the tiniest tremble. Gemma took the pill, quiet as a lamb. We buried her there, in the moonlight, marked the spot with a stone. She looks at me, expression as placid as ever, like she didn't just tell me how she watched her partner disintegrate before her eyes before mercy killing her in the forest. Something hot falls on my wrist and I realize I'm crying. How do you do it? It comes at a croak. Keep living. The corners of her mouth creep upward, the tiniest bit. Maybe my logic is starting to go, too. Did Paloma just make a sickness joke? I know nothing about her. Is she the type of person who uses humor as a defense? I hadn't thought her capable. I work, she says. I watch you. You give me hope. Really? I wasn't expecting that. You're young, and you're learning. You ask questions I wouldn't think of, because I've been going through the motions for so long. That's how we're going to figure out how to stop this thing. She gazes at me evenly. The receiving end of Paloma's stare is intense as ever, but this time... It doesn't make me feel like I've done something wrong. I feel like she's seeing me, almost the way Mom used to. The cycle continues, she says, simply. We learn from the pain, and we find joy and hope where we can. I nod like I know what she's talking about. But then again, maybe I do. 
Everyone's been talking about the sickness like it's changed everything. And in some ways, it has. Everyone has at least one person they love who's died from it. The collective trauma in the world has increased in scale. But in other ways, everything's the same. I still wake up in the mornings and come to work and try to relate to my classmates. You think a crisis of this scale will solve your smaller problems, or at least make it so you don't care about them. But I'm still stressing about whether Paloma thinks I'm doing a good job. I'm still too scared to talk to the cute girl from chem. I didn't magically go back and fix things with Humel. There is no divine scale that says, hey, enough is enough. It's all on us. Paloma neatly puts out her cigarette on the step. Come, let's go say farewell to your... Yamel, I finish. Yamel. She stands and reaches a hand down to pull me up, then steadies me while my head spins. I lean against the railing for a moment, watching the cars pass, moving forward, always. I'm not ready, but I follow Paloma through the open door. All right, I hope you enjoyed that fantastic short story. It's time now to have a bit of a chat with the author about the whole process. I suppose a word of warning that I do let them back out of their blanket fort to have a bit more of a relaxed chat, sometimes just over the phone. So if the audio quality dips a little here and there, bear with us, and I'm sure the content will keep you tuned in anyway. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Being my very own guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, so excited. I'm honored to be your guinea pig. Uh, you are the first guest on the show uh, with the short story, The Alonzo Research Center for the Studies of the Undead. I had such a hard time choosing which story of yours to feature because over the last couple of years, you've become, like, you've become so prolific with your short stories. So, <laughs> so I want to start there. Like, why short stories? What is the appeal? I mean, the first, the first and kind of most basic appeal for me is that they're, for me, they're just easier than writing longer form things because you don't have to think about how you're going to uh, connect things later on or how something's going to play out in the long term because there is no long term. So I think you're kind of more free to play around with um, characters and little plot things that if it were a longer story you'd be expected to to have like a clever resolution for later on but in a short story you can just end it and say hey uh up to you audience interpretation um (laughs) you know that's kind of like the cheater's way of of what I like about short stories but also it's just um lets me play around with the pieces of writing fiction that I like the most um Mm. my favorite parts of writing are creating a character and finding that character's voice. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the, the, the plot elements are kind of secondary. Uh, They kind (laughs) of, they, they feel like more of a chore to do. I'm like, Oh, right. I need things need to happen in like a way that's compelling. Um, For me, the part that comes most naturally and that I find the most compelling to, to write about is, is really exploring that character's voice and figuring out who they are and what they want um, and how they move through the world. 
And in short stories, you can really focus in on a moment and explore why that moment is um, significant to that character and how, why it's a significant moment in their life, why it yeah. represents some type of turning point for them. Um, and you don't need, there is like a mini plot inside the short story, but it's mm -hmm. not as involved. It doesn't take as much planning. You can really just focus on those pieces that are showing why the character the character's kind of like internal journey or like a, a moment mm -hmm. in their life. See, that's so, so I find that fascinating because I am the total opposite um, <laughs> in that, like, I much prefer sort of writing in long form, um, writing the novel um, and kind of discovering things as I go. And I, I find sort of the short payoff of a short story so 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 challenging um, <laughs> yeah um, you're so good at plot <laughs> <laughs> and you're so good at voice like um <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that um in our critique group everyone always mentions is your voice is always comes across so strong and so I think one of the things that I mean one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because like I have this fascination about short stories I can't do them so I wanted to speak to people whose whose short stories I really admired um which is why which is why you're here um and Aww. so so one of the things I wanted to know was like what what tells you an idea is a short story instead of a novel what is it that sparks that for you I was thinking about this and listen I have wrote my first ever short story in the Phoenix airport on my way back from a four day long Grand Canyon visit slash breakup trip. Oh. Right? So <laughs> you remember that. Intense yeah. experience. <laughs> it had been, I had, I had spent the previous four days very slowly breaking up with my partner who I'd been with for six years. And um, it had been a very gay roller coaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we finally got to the conclusion at the end that we needed to break up after having a lot of extremely intense conversations. And so I had all this like built up, um, you know, emotion and ideas and just things that I felt like I needed to get out. And it just mm. kind of came out in the form of a short story. I think I, um, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where it, a short story can be more pure emotion. Mm. It's kind of like between, I don't know if everyone would agree with this, uh, but. <laughs> well, I want to know what you a, think. Right. I mean, this is a little bit of a hot take off the top of my head. So I don't know if even I agree with this fully, but I feel like a short story is a little bit between um, poetry and long form fiction in mm -hmm. that it, you can really focus in more on just a feeling or an emotion. Um, and it doesn't have to like strictly make sense as much as you would want a novel to. Yeah. And so, so do you think that there's, room for more ambiguity it doesn't have to have this like perfect sort of resolution of an ending do you think there's there's more space for something that's not fixed yeah I, and I think you can do that in long form as well but mm -hmm. I think in a short story you you can have more of that just like pure raw emotion I think and that can be kind of the meat of the story yeah in think, that, whereas in long form you need a little more to support it <laughs> yeah and months and years and yeah editing. right it's, yeah and uh, yeah so when I wrote that first one um it's uh, it titled Camilla uh obviously about a breakup mm -hmm. uh and I, I was able like the whole thing is basically just like this girl go this teenage girl going through like the physical and emotional journey that I had been going on the previous mm -hmm. so you know four days and then like a month before that <laughs> yeah um 
all kind of distilled down into this this time and is and I don't know it was so emotionally potent I don't know if I could have written about something like that in a longer form because I I don't know if I would have been able to come back to it and write more of that when I wasn't in that same very like heightened vulnerable state yeah you know what I mean so it was like it really since it's shorter it lets you capture the moment if it is more of like a fleeting feeling that you're in in a fleeting mental state because I was like I want to not feel like this ever again Mm. uh but I also want (laughs) I also want to capture it because I think this is you know we we all go through heartbreak and I wanted to I felt like I needed to get things out of my head and they needed to be out in the world so it feels like you were um kind of using it as sort of a hybrid between a sort of a creative expression but also journaling right yeah yeah (laughs) definitely it's funny I am so a podcast I listen to a lot um first draft with Sarah Annie um I remember she said something to her guest once um and they were talking about how writing can be incredibly cathartic um Mm -hmm. but she said writing is not therapy therapy is therapy and I remember that so clearly because I was like, oh, yeah, that's so true. But it is it is an interesting situation you come into when someone like you is is sort of treading the line so delicately. Yeah, I mean, I would say I think writing for me at least helps me get to the point where I know I have a starting point for what I can say to my therapist. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> You're like, right, now I finished the story. I know I know what I can jump in. On. Yeah, it like gives me it, it helps me solidify my thoughts and feelings so that I can actually express something coherent to my therapist. I mean, I think that kind of brings me on to the next point really, really well. Like I was saying that, um, you know, you've been really prolific this last couple of years when it comes to the short stories, you're really churning them out. Um, and so this generation of ideas, um, it feels like they're so incredibly um, a part of you. It's, it feels like you very much put yourself into them. And I was, your voice as a human is so present in your writing. Um, like, does that come naturally or is it conscious effort with a story? Like I hear your voice as a teacher. I hear your mm-hmm. voice, like um, the line in, in the story we just heard um, where gun ownership is more widespread than health insurance. Like I felt Sam coming out at me um, <laughs> and I, I really, really heard that. So talk me through that sort of how does your life intertwine with the generation of ideas and your, your identity, how does that, kind of play out on the page it definitely I mean I do I think voice is the area of writing that does come the most naturally to me um I worry at this point that all my characters are kind of too similar (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because they're all you know I, I, I love to write in first person and I just wrote a short story um that I submitted to a contest fingers crossed um, and I wrote it in third person and that was very strange because I wanted to consciously try something different. I was like, mm. okay, I have this thing where I write my short, my, I write my fiction and it's like this kind of like quippy, sassy, uh, teenager, like rebellious gay teen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's great. And I think I can make it work, but I also don't want to become formulaic and maybe it's too early, you know, like maybe I should be more published before I worry about a formula. <laughs> like maybe let me figure out a formula that works first. Mm. Um, oh, it's a long way to answer your question, but I think those are the things, the the elements kind of like of my identity, my identity and my politics and my worldview, my own personal worldview that come through in my characters are things that kind of 
come out of my brain and then I have to usually edit out later because they don't necessarily mm. fit with the character. Um, <laughs> so okay. this is it. Like in the process, it's like they just come out and I'm like, well, I'll put this here. Uh, maybe it'll make sense when I go to edit and maybe it won't. Um, yeah, just in the way that all of our, I think for most writers, all our characters are kind of proxies for one version of ourselves or another. Yeah, no, I, so I totally it's, agree. Yeah, it's like figuring out which of those little snarky comments would make sense for that character in that world that they're in. And I, I really think, I mean, you say you feel like you're too early in the process, but like, I think you really, really nailed um, sort of how you handle voice for each character. They're always sort of these really strong young women who, um, you know, have like a slightly skeptical worldview and they have uh, sort of, they've experienced pain, they've experienced a lot, but um, I certainly wouldn't say that the characters are the same. Um, Okay, so, so let's talk about Ella and, and how you settled on uh, the Alonso Institute. Um, full disclosure to yeah. the listener, uh, we were having conversations about this podcast way back at the end of like 2019. And so I didn't have any idea how relevant a story about a raging virus would be. Um, <laughs> and like I was listening to it again recently, just preparing for this. And um yeah, I was like, wow, so much of this is so relevant. Um, and Ella herself, like what she goes through, how she's feeling. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about the Alonso Institute and Ella. Let's let's talk about that. Tell me how you how you found this. Yeah, man. I had the same experience when I was just re-listening to it before we talked today. I was like, oh, I seriously wrote this before the pandemic. And mm. I did. <laughs> like, um, and it seems so fictional, right? Right. I was like, oh, I want to write a fun story that's kind of macabre about a zombie research lab. Mm-hmm. Right. And then <laughs> and then it became real life. Um, kind of. Mm-hmm. But the so the inspiration came from and I just remembered this. The first line my friend said something really similar to me. We were talking about her older brother who is a I think he's a brain surgeon he's some kind of surgeon Mm -hmm. and he's always been a little distant he's much older than us this is a friend I've known since elementary school Mm -hmm. he's always been much older um just kind of held himself a little apart kind of like a hard nut to crack um and she was talking about him and their adult relationship and she was saying that it kind of all makes sense that he keeps himself at a distance from people because uh you know if you're going to be cutting people open you can't really see them as people And I was like, wow, that's a really good line. That's a great one liner. Mm -hmm. And let's explore that. What if they're not actually people anymore? What if something has destroyed what makes them human? And then if that's the case, what is it that makes us human? You know, at what point do we stop that even if our bodies are still walking around and functioning? Yeah, I love the fact that you introduced it as, um, you know, a fun sort of story. Um, it's it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely got the macabre in that. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that's so incredible about this story is that it is such a big setting, such a big idea, and yet it's just the most beautifully intimate story. Um, and I, I think you do that quite a lot. And like, talk talk to me about that. What what, what was so appealing about that? Yeah, well, thank you. You're so nice. The way I was thinking about it when I was conceiving the idea, I was like, okay, I want it to be a casual zombie apocalypse. You know, kind of like, (laughs) yeah, it's a zombie apocalypse, but this story is not going to focus on the disaster moment or 
the really dramatic, like we're finding out things are starting to fall apart. It was, mm-hmm. it's like exploring what happens in the aftermath when that's become the new normal mm. and kind of zombies are just among us and we all have to learn how to deal with it, which is, you know, uh, where we are right now at the end of 2020. Yeah. With the zombies that come in. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> they really are. Um, I mean, you know what? This uh, this vaccine. Hopefully, it doesn't go wrong, huh? Maybe the zombies are coming. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I'll probably cut that bit out. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 Who knows? Who knows? Um, so yeah, I've talked about your voice sort of being so present um, in your writing, um, and so I want to talk about sort of the the experience of you know recording your story hearing your story how how did that play out for you how yeah how how was it I mean I love reading out loud um Mm -hmm. I'm a literacy teacher reading out loud is one of my favorite parts of teaching Mm -hmm. and you're such a great director to work with you're so encouraging Um, thank you and all of the things that you had me stop and redo I can hear in the playback how much better they sound for that. Um, so that was really great. I recommend working with Alicia. Um, <laughs> I didn't pay you, I swear. Uh, she's not paying me to say that or <laughs> giving me any special treatment. It's just true. Um, but it was very cool hearing. I mean, I've been hearing my voice in recording for a while now. I've gotten pretty used to it because I am teaching remotely these days. Oh yeah. So I've been recording my mini lessons for all my lessons so it'll be like here's the video you're gonna watch me miss sam teach this lesson and then like i'm gonna pop up on google meet and be like hey kids great you got it cool go do your work now um so i've been listening to myself teach four times a day every weekday since september so that's a whole moment but i don't know for some reason it's like my teacher voice feels like a different persona Mm. than my narrating voice. So it did kind of, at first I was kind of cringing and self-critiquing and like, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. Mm. And about a minute into the story, I would say, it started to feel like it was someone else. Wow. uh, Which was really weird. I think, I don't know, it just like sounded so polished and I'm not used to hearing myself (laughs) read like that. Um, I wish I could direct all your lessons. Oh my God, would you? It'd be so funny. (laughs) <laughs> maybe a little production credit the kids will like <laughs> tell their parents <laughs> i'm sure someone's got a parent that like works at mcmillan or something amazing amazing um yeah so you're so your voice is so uniquely in your characters and i think because of your experience with reading out loud kind of really prepared you for this you're incredibly easy to direct um authors aren't always comfortable narrating their stories um but you were really Mm. eager and I think the attitude of Ella just came across so strongly hearing it in your voice as well like there's so many brilliant moments Mm -hmm. within the audio recording um where I was just like oh she nailed that like are there any parts of the story where you (laughs) kind of like thought yes I mean I have anxiety so (laughs) I was, I mean, you know, I was more listening for like, oh, wait, I want to go back and do that and do it differently. Like yeah. <laughs> um, the parts with the conversation back and forth, mm. especially at the end between Ella and Paloma. Mm. I, I remember we had to do that a few times because yeah. it, it like, I'm, I think my experience reading out loud has given me a lot of comfort 
reading with emotion and reading, you know, smoothly and fluently and like mm-hmm. at a good pace for people to comprehend. But I'm not a voice actor, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I don't know how to do different voices. Uh, so I'm just going to try to capture different moods. Yeah. And I think I kind of yeah, got definitely. it, but there's still like moments. Yeah, there's moments in there that kind of, I think. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think you so. Know. One of the things that I always try to do, especially if I'm working with an author narrator, um, is that I I tell them that it's not that I want them to be putting on a voice. I want them to be, like you said, capturing a mood. Um, and I tend to kind of try and frame a character with like four particular words that that kind of suit the mood. And I think the thing that's very interesting when you get a writer sort of recording their audio is they suddenly kind of realize that you don't write for people to necessarily read it out loud and so you may kind of put a she said they said like a tag in there um mm-hmm. in an audio in audio so that you can uh so you know you can differentiate super quickly um but i think that's part of the charm of directing performing the audiobook is that you do have to kind of really kind of capture these moods capture the difference and i think you said you did it so beautifully with the sort of the youth and energy of ella and her like delightfully sarcastic sort of take on the world <laughs> and then paloma like sh- she had a certain amount of stillness and this like wise sensitivity um, and mm-hmm. I thought you captured that beautifully thank you um I, okay now I can answer your question because I've like been self-effacing for a moment um <laughs> <laughs> I, I did write down in my notes that I I can hear myself reveling in the goriness in the part where I'm talking about the the gristle and the um Ella talking about how she's not squeamish and she loved dissecting the fetal pig and all of that mm-hmm. uh I remember I read this story at a an open mic night that my friend Liana runs and it that part everyone kind of shuddered <laughs> I was like, yeah sorry <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, that part's a little grisly. Sorry, y'all. I know, I love it. Like, did you, did you, yeah. for that moment, did you write it and like kind of did you go over it loads and loads to try and uh, elevate that as much as you could? Like, how do you get those like such visceral moments into your writing? Um, you can't see I'm making a really visceral face right now. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember. I, they just kind of come from like that dark place, you know, where I'm like, <laughs> when I've had those moments of just like really wanting to like revel in some gore and like watch a like house of a thousand corpses and just be like, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, like what, what am I tapping into when I'm like in that mode? And like people that I think a few people I know who are also like that, uh, kind of like, how do, how do they talk about stuff like that? Is it a genre that you're like particularly interested in? Like, is this like part of your sort of watching or reading? Like, is, is that how you kind of get to this place? The, like, horror-gore genre? Yeah. <laughs> I do love, like, a cheesy horror and, like, a self-aware horror. Okay. Um, we're a big, we're a big scream household. Yeah. In my home. I just, I love self-awareness. And, mm. like, one of my favorite series ever is Firefly. Uh, I just, and, yes. like, Joss Whedon is so good. So good. At, at that, of just, like, this is really good, and you're getting, like, good plot, but also, like, the dialogue's fucking hilarious, and <laughs> we're not taking ourselves too, too seriously, but, like, you're probably still gonna cry at the end when, like, your favorite character dies. And, and was um, that the aim for this? And that's kind of always, a lot of the time, that's, that type of vibe is what I try to channel. It's, mm. it, it's what I 
really admire that that vibe of like a Joss Whedon or like a, a lot of those kind of late 90s teen rom-coms like 10 mm-hmm. things i hate about you it's not yes. sci-fi or, or horror but that vibe of um of just the banter mm-hmm. always is always something that i'm trying to strive for i don't think this is i think one of my less bantery mm. pieces but i'd say it's less bantery in the um sort of ha- relationship with her and paloma purely for for who paloma is but i think you have yeah. that sense of banter <laughs> still so strongly in the narration like in Ella's conversation with herself Mm -hmm. right and Paloma is just like I wanted her to be a character you know like a yeah like she's so flat she's so like mysterious you know she's not yeah she's so hard to read and then so that when they have that moment of because especially I mean the thing with short stories is like you have it's like I've been watching so much Great British Bake Off. It, <laughs> it always reminds me of like, do you watch the show? Yes, obsessively. Okay, great. I always think of when they're talking about like patisserie and they're like, it's small, so it has to pack a lot of flavor in mm. that one bite. And that's kind of the same for short stories. Beautiful. Where it's like, um, I feel like Paloma had to be such an intense, extreme type of character so that when they had this moment of opening up it felt it was more impactful. Mm, yeah, that makes so, that makes complete yeah. sense. Um, and like, how did you find trying to voice Paloma, trying to get that into the audio too? In terms of sitting yeah. down and trying to translate what you had on the page into sort of a voice. I mean, you are a great reader, you're a great performer, but you're not trained, right? Right. Yeah, and so... <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah, and so like, but you still manage to get such beautiful authenticity with it. So, so I'm really interested in how, how, how you kind of felt about that character. What were the struggles? What, 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 what came easily or if anything came easily? Yeah, she was challenging to voice because I mean, the way I had described her in the text was that she had this kind of deep, like almost gravelly mm-hmm. smoker's voice that's just really soothing, but also really harsh. Mm. And I, I think we also, we went through this a few times where I was trying to do, I was trying to do it and then had to just kind of settle for like using my normal voice, but like <laughs> a little lower and more even yeah. than I normally do. Um, so I'm like, I don't, wait, I don't know how to make my voice go grav- gravelly. Like how <laughs> do you do that? And yeah. I'm sure a voice actor could tell you how to do that. <laughs> um, absolutely. There's, there's all the tricks, all the tricks. Um, and it might be recording at like seven o'clock in the morning when you've spoken to nobody. Um, oh, genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Genius. Right. Normally when I'm recording with someone, I'm like, if it's early in the morning, please spend like an hour talking to someone beforehand. Um, just, just chat your partner's ear off, please. Because, uh, right. uh, otherwise it takes say just to warm up into it. But yeah, like, I think, I mean, I think how we approach that um, if I remember correctly, was that when when we were doing the gravelly, it, it just it felt like she came across as a caricature, and so for us, it felt like the mm-hmm. balance of uh, creating sort of an authentic feeling character, and she was lower, and she was slower, and she was more considered. So it wasn't a perfect match in that moment to what was written, but I think we still really kind of captured the the essence with the stillness of her character. So yeah, it was a she was she mm. was a tricky one. Yeah, I mean, I think the most like the most important element of her story wise isn't like that her voice is gravelly. Like, sure, that's mm. that's a detail, but it's like 
I wanted her to contrast with Ella in that it's the stillness and the the wisdom of being older and having that perspective and being able to share some of that perspective with mm. Ella. Yeah. And so, yeah, just kind of capturing that difference in just the way that each of them were coming to that conversation and the energy they were bringing. I think that, I think that comes through. I hope it comes through. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it just comes back to something that I'm super passionate about anyway, is, is the idea of adaptation. And um, one of the things that I talk about quite a lot with anyone who will listen to me is how I think that audiobooks <laughs> Uh, they're not just a byproduct of um, of someone writing a novel. They should become their own medium. They should become their own thing. And it's like adapting something for a TV show or a film. You have all these sort of decisions that need to be made. Um, and it's kind of finding that beautiful balance between literature and theater and finding that performance um, that one feels authentic and true to the themes and the ideas and sort of the author's intention. But also if the person who's narrating it when they come out with a gravelly voice that sounds like a caricature, like, is that going to take us out? Is that going to dishonor the, um, mm. yeah. And so I think it's really, really taking it as, as an adaptation process. Um, oh, I said process. I've been in America way too long process. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, you, you guys are, you, you guys are rubbing <laughs> off on me. <laughs> Um, work those short O's baby okay I will I will um, I'll be getting hate mail from, from the UK I'm sure <laughs> um, progress, okay. progress. Yeah. so this is interesting um, I mean I know that in our critique group in our sort of circle I am I am the big like advocate for audiobooks um, and I find myself uh, sort of talking to you guys lots about it and I'm um, so are you a listener of audiobooks yes you with are. caveats though so yeah <laughs> I, I love an audiobook so so much mm-hmm. but I have trouble processing new content mm-hmm. that's audiobook length through like audibly oh, um, I think just the way my brain works I process better when I've seen something mm-hmm. and I'm usually when I'm listening to an audiobook it's usually I'm like organizing or cleaning or you know whatever doing other things mm-hmm. so I need it it there's something so, so comforting about listening to an audiobook where I know the story. Yeah. So, so I've, I think I've listened to the Harry Potter audiobooks so many times and they just like nothing relaxes me more. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask a controversial question. Um, so yes. I'm, I'm presuming you listen to the American ones, right? I listen to the Jim Dale ones. Yeah. I listen to the, the Stephen ones. Fry ones. Uh, <laughs> and which in itself interesting. is super interesting because you know exactly the same text two very different voices two very different uh staples of nostalgia in in uh mm-hmm. fiction and the listening experience and I'm pretty sure that my experience of listening to Stephen Fry narrate them and your experience listening to sorry was it Jim Dale mm-hmm. um narrate them uh, I imagine we both get like the same kick of like serotonin, that same nostalgia, that same yeah. everything. Yet me listening to the Jim Dale version and you listening to the Stephen Fry version could be an incredibly different and uh, yeah. experience. Totally. I would be down to do that experiment. I yeah. haven't stuck with Jim Dale on purpose. It just is the way that it, it I guess it's the one that Audible gave me the first time mm-hmm. I yeah. <laughs> downloaded it. 
Um, it must have known I was American. Is it? It's the exact same. Isn't there like a British version where it uses like British metrics and like yeah, like the language and. Yeah, like yeah. the language is slightly different. Like, for example, it's the Sorcerer's Stone and the Philosopher's Stone and so those different things, um, which I think was very sort of indicative of the era of audiobooks. I'm not sure there would be so much of a change in it now. I think it's yeah. because audiobooks are so much more a part of sort of reading culture now. Um, I think that American listeners have heard lots of British stuff and I think British listeners will have heard lots of American uh, sort of stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's still a thing, um, but yeah, that's a, that sounds like a fun experiment. Maybe we'll do like a bonus episode in the future. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds great. Um, but yeah, so stuff like that. And then The Magicians is my other big one that I've mm. listened to a bunch of times. So, and, and I try to do new, I can, I can kind of do nonfiction better. Mm. Um, I listened to Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi. Oh, amazing, yeah. Earlier, uh, a couple months ago. Oh, it was amazing. Highly recommend. Yeah. Um, I learned so much, and it it was easier for me to process the nonfiction. I think my my kind of theory is like with nonfiction, if you space out for a page, you can pick it up again, mm. and you you miss some information, but you didn't. I think it affects less your ability to uh, process the rest. Whereas like with fiction, if you lose the thread, you're just like at sea. So I don't know if that's true for everything, but I do, I've noticed that pattern in myself where it's, it, it is a little easier for me to process. And maybe it's just because I have more practice listening to podcasts mm. and I tend to like nonfiction podcasts better than fiction podcasts. Um, yeah. So maybe I'm just used to doing that kind of processing orally rather than visually. So yeah, I'm not sure, but I, um, yeah, I love an audiobook needed to be shorter or familiar. <laughs> yeah, I mean like there's there's absolutely no right or wrong sort of answers here uh, at all. Like um for me audiobooks um are a huge part of my reading experience purely for the fact that if I am directing something, I will be reading that book on the paper, I will be writing notes and everything like that. And so my actual reading experience from um sort of my own pleasure kind of has to get like shoved into somewhere in my life and so I do it when I'm uh, running like you said when you're doing the dishes or that sort of thing and mm. um, and I always find that if it's a really good audiobook I'll come in from a run and I'll be like oh I'll just stretch for like an extra 10 minutes or something like that yeah um, and it like it pulls you in like for me that's the only thing that's going to get me running it takes a lot to convince me to run so um okay so what I'm really interested in um, is this was a fiction audio experience for you. Um, sort of what new things did can you take from hearing it, especially knowing that you are someone who actually, you know, needs it either in short form or nonfiction. Like well, what new things can you take from hearing your own story recorded? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I heard edits that I wanted to make. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like always self-critiquing. Of course. Um, but I mean, also just hearing it again, I haven't looked at it in a while. And obviously we talked about the themes mm. of this story in particular being so salient right now. Mm. Uh, and so I think that was the thing that hearing it again stood out to me the most, just thinking about how towards the end when they're talking about how things, something disastrous and something huge mm. happens and you think it's going to change everything, but then 
you adjust to it so quickly, kind of life goes on and you, you know, you still wake up in the morning. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of comforting and kind of terrifying, depending on how you look at it. Um, well, I so, think it's both. And I think yeah, that's got, the point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It kind of just got me thinking again about the dual nature of uh, disasters, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not the cheeriest subject, but I think it, it, it comes very matter of fact. And I think especially with your delivery of that, that end line where Ella says everyone's been talking about the sickness, like it's changed everything. And in some ways it has. And she talks about like the collective trauma in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's, and she talks about how in some ways everything's the same and that she still has to go to work. She still has to interact with her uh, students. She still has to worry about whether or not her boss likes her. Um, And I think it kind of, yes it kind of states this tragic feeling and i think your your tone it was so beautifully reflective um but yet casual as if you're like speaking to a friend that it kind of i i when i listened to it uh yesterday again i just i kind of i felt it hugely comforting especially within the moment that we're in um and i hadn't been i hadn't expected to feel that um but yeah i, I think it's incredibly relevant now i'm glad it felt comforting that's amazing yeah, that, that matter of factness that you were talking about is one of the big reasons why I love writing from the perspective of young people is because they do tend to just be matter of fact sometimes about things that adults freak out about because as an adult, you have, I guess you have more of a um, developed sense of how you think the world should be. Mm. And when you're a young person, you're still creating that. You're still taking in that information and and developing your sense of how things are and how things should be and what your perspective on everything is. And that's something that's really beautiful about that age and about um, writing from the perspective of people who are that age. And I I, I get reminded of that all the time because I work with young people. It's always really interesting seeing how they're internalizing the state of the world compared to people our age. So this is a question I, I'm going to ask all guests once they've come on. Um, has the experience changed your feelings or understanding of audiobook and audio production at all? I mean, I've always had a ton of respect for audiobook narrators because mm. it's such a huge task. It's something I've thought I would like to do mm. before. Like, oh, that would be a cool thing. I love to read out loud. Um, and it definitely kind of hammered in that there's so many skills you need and it's such a process and it's you have to really be just on all the time like when you're when you're just reading for yourself you can let it be a little more passive you can let it just kind of wash over you but when you're reading out loud and you have to and you're narrating for an audience like every single word has to be delivered perfectly and that takes so much attention and so much energy uh so definitely uh gave me a tiny taste of of what, what that job might be and uh man y'all are amazing audiobook narrators yeah they 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 nail it like it's a tricky one and I think (laughs) one of the things I hear so regularly I mean a huge portion of audiobooks that are created are created by uh narrators at home in their own studio directed by themselves engineered by themselves like it's a whole thing and those like that's incredible not everyone kind of has that a luxury of kind of having a director or that sort of thing or being in a studio mm. with engineers um and so yeah there's a whole sort of 
uh, spectrum of responsibility when it comes to sort of being an audiobook narrator you kind of have to be ready to do it all yourself as well which um yeah in itself is insane Sam thank you so so much for uh, joining me you talked about so many interesting things that um I'll pop as many links as I can in the show notes um so tell me where listeners can find you if they want more of Sam yes okay Y'all can follow me on Twitter, where I don't tweet a whole lot, but um, tweet about writing exclusively. (laughs) So that's at Sam Panapinto, P-A-N-E-P-I-N-T-O. And my Instagram is at Sam Rose from the Dead. Uh, That's my middle name, Rose. So Sam, R-O-S-E, from the Dead which is very appropriate for this story. <laughs> so appropriate. Um, thank you so yeah. much for, for being my first guest, Sam. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Amazing. Awesome. Oh, wait, you can also, my, um, my, my website with my, all my short stories is samanthapanapinto.com. Great. And yeah, check them out. Like I said, Sam is super <laughs> prolific. So many ideas coming out of that brain of yours. Um, and uh, I can't wait to read what else comes next. Or listen, maybe we'll get you on the podcast again. Yes. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much to Sam for sharing her short story and process with us this week. And thank you to Ali Hofkosik from SSR for all her podcasting advice. And thank you to Teddy Merricks, my one-man production team for the music and logos. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. Please do rate and review the podcast and share on social media. I know podcasters always say that, but they might be onto something. It honestly does help for discoverability by making sure a podcast doesn't get lost at the bottom of the pile. If you're interested in getting involved, either by submitting your short story or having a chat with me about audiobooks, you can find more info and contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. I also hang around on Instagram under aliciasbooks.n.bobs, as in books and bobs. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. See you all next time. <laughs>